Field. National Security This Week, a weekly look at American national security issues. And now, your host, John Olson. Good morning, everyone. It's Wednesday, November 8th, 2023, and you've joined us for National Security This Week. I'm your host, John Olson. We get together every Wednesday here on KYMN Radio to discuss national security challenges and opportunities, and we're joined by guests from our local area, from around Minnesota, and from across the nation to explore national security. On this show, we've covered many, many times the national security challenges posed by the People's Republic of China. Uh, We often think about these challenges in American terms, but America has many allies and friends around the world, some of whom are located very close to China. One such important ally is Japan. We're going to take a deep dive into Japan's defense policies this morning and consider Japan's geostrategic importance in regional security and stability. Our guest this morning is Yuki Tatsumi. Yuki Tatsumi is a senior fellow and co-director of the East Asia Program and director of the Japan Program at the Stimson Center. Before joining Stimson, Tatsumi worked as a research associate at the Center for Strategic and International Studies and as the special assistant for political affairs at the Embassy of Japan in Washington, D.C. Tatsumi has authored numerous analytical studies covering a wide range of security topics, many of which can be found on the Stimson Center's website. In September 2006, Tatsumi testified before the House Committee on International Relations. She's a recipient of the 2009 Yasuhiro Nakasone Incentive Award. In 2012, she was awarded the Letter of Appreciation from the Ministry of National Policy of Japan for her contribution in advancing mutual understanding between the United States and Japan. A native of Tokyo, Tatsumi holds a Bachelor of Arts in Liberal Arts from the International Christian University in Tokyo, and a Master of Arts in International Economics and Asian Studies from the Paul Nietzsche School of Advanced International Studies, or SICE, at Johns Hopkins University in Washington, D.C. Yuki Tatsumi, welcome to National Security This Week. Hi, John. Thanks for having me. Are you sitting uh, at the Stimson Center right now while we're here on Zoom? I actually am um, sitting sitting at my at my house today because um, Stimson has a hybrid work schedule. So right. today's my remote working day. <laughs> That's perfect. That's perfect. <laughs> not a very long commute then for you today. Um, no, not at all. Uh, so let me start off with a, a quick question about the Stimson Center, a DC-based uh, think tank. Uh, whenever I have what? guests on the show uh, who who serve at think tanks, I generally like to ask them a bit about the think tank, its mission, focus areas, that kind of thing. Can you tell us a a bit about the Stimson Center? Sure. Um, So Stimson Center was founded originally in 1989. And uh, in Washington, like you mentioned, John, um, think tank business is very unique to Washington, I think. (laughs) We label ourselves, as uh, most of us uh, call us uh, nonpartisan. Our objective is to really provide... um, practical policy recommendations to the uh, policymakers and uh, lawmakers here in Washington, D.C. So with that, various think tanks have uh, different focus. Um, Stimson has originally started as the uh, think tank that really focused on nuclear disarmament, Mm -hmm. Um, thus the name of uh, Stimson. Uh, We we have the we got the uh, permission from the Henry L. Stimson family to uh, u- um, use his name as a namesake for the center. And uh, his, so that this uh, name symbolizes a couple of things. So one is a, num- a bipartisanship. Uh, Secretary Stimson worked for bo- both uh, Republican and Democrat administrations um, and, uh, and also uh, pra- uh, pragmatism. 
um, our co-founders uh, were both uh, working uh, uh, working as serving officials in the arms control and the uh, disarmament agency. And um, and the uh, third one is um, third one is um, really like academic freedom, mm-hmm. and uh, also commitment to the uh, you know better safer world. So. Yeah, the best think tanks are always, I think, the ones that are that are nonpartisan that really focus on <laughs> on the data, right? I mean, you, you do the study, yeah. you pull the data, you interpret the data. That that sort of drives you uh, towards yep. the policy recommendations, rather Absolutely. than rather than having um, the policy ideas first and then finding the data that you can you know cherry pick uh, to match what you want to accomplish. Right. What, I mean, what we other, very much focus on ground up. Yeah. So. What other areas are there at, at uh, S. Stimson that uh, are research areas? Um. So- so we quite, since the inception of the Stemson Center, uh, we pretty much diversified our portfolio a lot. So we still keep our original spirit of uh, nuclear nonproliferation, but then uh, we also do have a program that works, uh, looks at the uh, United Nations reform. Um, obviously, I, I run East Asia program with um, another colleague. We have a South Asia program, uh, Southeast Asia. Um, and we also recently added, um, welcomed the, uh, uh, another team from actually another think tank who actually prefer our um, nonpartisanship that looks at the uh, grand strategy, U.S. grand strategy from a little bit different uh, un- unconventional standpoint. And uh, what else uh, am I forgetting? Oh, and then also uh, reform in the uh, peacekeeping operations, oh, right, um, right. mainly focusing on how to protect civilians in conflict and a reconstruction effort. So I think those are some of the major projects that we have. Okay. Uh, so I also like to highlight- Oh, and then we do have a big China program too. Oh, okay. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah, my co-director is going to kill me if, if I don't mention her program. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, I also would like to highlight for for our listeners the, the educational opportunities that are in the international relations arena. And you're a graduate- uh, of one of the best international relations programs in the United States, Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, that graduate program at SICE? Sure, and uh, thank you for still calling my that my alma mater is one of the you know one of the best programs in IR. Um, so Paul, Paul H. Nitz's School of uh, Advanced International Studies. It's a little. Maui, but um, it is part of the uh, John Hopkins University, but we do have a separate campus in Washington, D.C. And uh, we very much focus on um, master's and PhDs in international relations. Um, We have regional studies programs such as South Asia, Africa, um, Asia, um, Europe, and so forth. But we also have a functional uh, focus program such as strategic studies, uh, American foreign policy, international law and organization, and so forth. And uh, you will find a lot of U.S. Uh, foreign service officer um, having having studied either complete four-year two master's program, or we do have a mid, uh, mid-term career program that offers those people who's been out in the field working in the government and um, other sectors for, for a few years to uh, take a, kind of a sabbatical from their professional life. And come in and study for for you know at at school for a year, for their um, master's for, um, for master's degrees. So we have a variety of that. Um, I think one one thing that differentiates our program with uh, other um, IR focus uh, graduate program is um, we it, there is a requirement that all of us have to take statistics 
an international economy. So we labor through, all of us labor through international trade theory, macroeconomic, international monetary monetary theory and uh, like I said statistics um, so if you're not wired to do those math it can be those can be a headache but um, I think that really helps us um, kind of a, give us a, both a trade and economics as well as a, um, policy like foreign policy perspectives well we're gonna we're program. gonna tap into that uh, that expertise on economics a little bit later in the show. <laughs> That said, though, my my expertise in Japanese economy is like one inch deep. So <laughs> we'll do our best. Just managing expectations. We'll do our best. Uh, so Yuki Tatsumi, we invited you on to National Security this week to discuss Japan's defense policies. But before we dive into those policies, you know where they're at today, I think it would be instructive to learn more about where Japan's uh, defense policies have been uh, for about mm-hmm. seventy years, right? Could you explain to our listeners right. about Japan's traditional role? with the self-defense forces and remaining decidedly non-military while participating in world mm-hmm. affairs. Uh, and when did that foreign policy approach sort of begin to change to one where Japan is a little bit sure. more willing to partner with other nations for security-related mm-hmm. operations? And, and maybe what was the catalyst for that change? Yeah, that's a very important question to ask, because if you look at Japan today and you if you hear about, you know, what um, Japan uh, Japan's defense policy has been up to what their policymakers are thinking. It is, it is kind of a mind-boggling um, for someone like me who looks, who has been looking at the uh, trajectory of their uh, defense policy for the last seventy, now last seven decades. Um, Japan's, uh, Japan's, like you mentioned, John, um, Japan's uh, defense policy has historically being primarily um, self-defense focus and uh, Japan like actually does have a, a kind of eclectic eclectic words to describe the contours of their defense policy which is exclusively defense um, defense oriented policy so what that means is self-defense force uh, while they they are a professional military organization like our military and any other country's military their primary mission is uh, there's a heavy heavy focus on um, defending um, Japanese owned territory that that also includes airspace and the um, and the territorial water any EZs um, and the uh, kind of a hesitance to go too far out of that. Um, it really wasn't until the 1980s that uh, self-defense force uh, starts to being dispatched to do things uh, far away from their territory. But then even then, um, and then you know, this, this holds true today, that uh, they're um, out of the area, um, Operations really tend to focus on uh, humanitarian assistance and disaster relief, and the uh, reconstruction assistance, and uh, no active uh, role in uh, combat mission frontline. So that really has been the hallmark and uh, constant um, nature of uh, Japan's defense policy, and it, it still does hold true today. Um, they. The, but as the uh, definition of national defense starts to get broader nowadays, you know, um, now we have, you know, borders are very low when it comes to security threats and challenges and uh, escalation, pace of escalation or risk of the escalation of the conflict is so fast that uh, there, there's going to be, um, Japan is increasingly see the need of having greater agility in their defense force. Mm. 
and its equipment and how they train and so forth. And uh, we, I know we talk about this a little later, but uh, that really um, impacts um, Japan's very active, I will call it defense diplomacy. Um, that, is a, that is a very uh, recent phenomena for like the last decade or so. Um, but um, I'm trying to think what, what are the important, uh, other important features that I, that I have. Oh, and then another thing, this is, this is very few, uh, this is very important at this age, particularly at this day and age, is that uh, one of the core uh, security policy that Japan has held dear is the, uh, their uh, commitment um, not to go, uh, not to become a nuclear power on its own. Yeah. Um, it really is. Um, it really is anchored in their history of the Hiroshima and Nagasaki's atomic bombing, and uh, they actually do have a, a policy called um, we call it three Ps, um, three NPs. So do not possess, do not produce, and do not introduce um, j- uh, nu- nuclear weapons into j- in Japan. Mm. So that is a very very important feature that still remains very very strong today. Yeah. Uh, were, were some of these these policy shifts due to uh, political? Was it political leadership in Japan? Meaning, was there sort of a transformation leader in Japan uh, who who began to advocate for a larger role for Japan in, in more security uh, related uh, operations around the world, or or was it also, or maybe more, a, a national sense of of duty to participate in collective security related efforts because Japan's economy is huge. I mean, it is a, a very important global uh, power. Uh, economically, uh, to right. use Japan's capable self-defense forces to assist uh, much more directly in humanitarian assistance or disaster relief efforts. We've seen the United States Navy and Marine Corps team and, and other parts of the U.S. military be applied right. in, in these disaster relief and humanitarian missions. Uh, Japan's self-defense forces are very, very capable, very capable, uh, and they can do those many of those similar missions. Uh, maybe you could highlight for us the kind of the evolution of Japan's doctrine with sure. regard to participating in what are more traditional sort of military-centric mm-hmm. roles. So um, I think um, that change in the uh, that change in policy um, is a result of a confluence of a couple of things. Um, one big um, one big um, turn of the event was the uh, first Gulf War mm. when um, Iraq invaded Kuwait. Um, at that time, if you recall, John, um, under the uh, UN auspices, um, there was a U.S.-led multinational um, multinational force that went in and, um, you know, basically, you know, liberate Kuwait um, off of the uh, invasion by by Iraq. So Japan did not send any combat mission out of that. Um, there, um, they they did provide a uh, huge uh, financial assistance. And after the combat is over, um, Japan Maritime Self Defense Forces, a minesweeper, went and the uh, clean, uh, clean clear out the mines um, to ensure that you know the water around that area is um, is safe. But uh, and, what and, and was, we should uh, we really... should highlight we should highlight that that is an incredibly dangerous mission for a naval ship to carry. Oh out, yeah, absolutely. Way. And then I think I would I would argue Japan has the best one of the best uh, Japanese American Self Defense Force has one of the best um, capability in that um, in that area, in you know amongst like all the all the navies in the world. Um, however, though, uh, with all that um, 
because um, because Japan really didn't send or allow South Defense Force to um, participate in the uh, actual uh, liberation mission of the multinational force. Uh, Japan's approach was really criticized as a checkbook, checkbook diplomacy in a sense that um, Japan has tried to you know, you know, buy themselves out of not sending its people when there's a multinational force that are trying to do this together. And uh, they really didn't get, um, I guess, credit for either for their financial um, contributions to support and fund the war or um, after the war uh, minesweeping missions. So that really was a traumatic experience. But but were, aren't there constitutional constraints on the self-defense forces to be deployed abroad in a combat situation? Um, so that is a very good question. Um, there is a there is a constraints. Um, Japan is um, Japan did have does have a policy of um, only exercising um, right of collect, you know, participate in those collective security effort and a very limited circumstances that that is one of the major policy changes that happened just within the last last 10 years. So at that time, yeah, I mean, Japan, you, you know, J- Japan, Japanese South Defense Force had the uh, constitutional constraints to participate in those collective security actions. So that was why, you know, what they did at that time was the best it could do. So after the combat mission is over, then they could go out and do those minesweeping. But it was very important that those, you know, operation takes place after the combat is completely done. <laughs> um, so that was a major um, wake-up call, so to speak, for Japan, because the criticism at that time is, like you mentioned, John, um, you know, with this like huge economic powerhouse, Japan is really not doing much, you know, physically in the in in the form of allowing its you know self defense force to participate in those collective security actions, um, to kind of com- you know kind of commiserate with their economic you know economic power that it that it that it had at that time. So that really got them to think about uh, what are the way in which Japan can allow that to happen. But then you have to remember, though, still Japan has been, you know, Japan's Health Defense Force has been, on, you know, still has that constraints about um, non, um, its inability to participate in out-of-the-area combat role. So the first uh, step that it, baby step that it took is to start looking at allowing them to participate in the peacekeeping operations. Because ostensibly, you know, the peacekeeping operation only happens after the combat is over. And now with that, even that becomes fluid now. And there were a couple of, you know, there were a couple of uh, difficult situations where there was a big um, domestic debate in Japan about whether it is actually constitutionally and legally okay for South Defense Force to stay in the mission. And uh, so that was uh, that was the first step. And then um, Japanese participation in the uh, post reconstruction mission in Iraq was another big step forward, because at that time it was still questionable. Even if President Bush declared that the mission is done, we won. There were still insurgency activities that, frankly, continues today still. Yeah. And uh, it was very debatable whether you were, con- you know, that's considered post-conflict. 
so there was another big debate um but um japan, japan going out there in the uh, in iraq to implement some of those post-conflict reconstruction activities that was another big step but when it comes to you know active combat mission japan still you know japan still does not participate right but in terms of the you know, pushing the those uh, boundaries for the South Defense Force to be out there, um, I I said it was a confluence of events. So there are those international events that started to getting you know given the public a little bit of an awareness of um, maybe we should be doing more. <laughs> we should, you know mm-hmm. South Defense Force should be doing more. But then there are a couple of um, transformation you know transformational leader. Um, along the way. First one was uh, Prime Minister Koizumi, who was in the office when 9-11 happened. And his political determination to move the mountain to make sure the self-defense force will, in some shape or form, participate in the multinational you know, coalition operation, uh, really moved the ball ne- needle in the direction that ends up being, you know, self-defense force, you know, operating in Iraq and uh, uh, sending, um, you know, sending the uh, transport uh, and other trans uh, support missions out of the Qatar. And uh, another leader who was very transformational in terms of pushing Japanese defense diplomacy and in, and uh, it's just a robust foreign policy presence overall is uh, Prime Minister Shinzo Abe who unfortunately was assassinated last year. Um, but he, so under these two conservative leaders, really those two leaders combined, um, they really moved the needle from where Japan's traditional uh, defense policy, which was only focused, pretty much only focused on its own defense to much more broader, much broader look at concept of how Japan defend itself. So it's not just only about physically de- defending its territories, but it's really more about Japan doing more to um, help um, create the uh, international order or maintain international order that allows Japan to stay safe. Sounds like the exercising of uh, the tools of national power in this thing we call statecraft, the art and science Very of statecraft. Much so. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, yeah. For our audience, you're listening to National Security This Week here on KYMN Radio. I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is Yuki Tatsumi, Senior Fellow and Co-Director of the East Asia Program and Director of the Japan Program at the Stimson Center in Washington, D.C. Uh, so, Yuki, could you, could you give us a sort of a sense of what Japan's military and intelligence services look like today? Just, just a brief overview so our listeners better understand what the self-defense forces and your right. intelligence and the intelligence services in Japan look like. So Japan's South Defense Force looks very much like our military here, um, Army Navy Air Force. Um, they don't call it Army Army Air Force Navy. Instead, Ground South Defense Force, um, Air and Space uh, Defense Force, and Maritime Defense Force. Um, there is, um, and Japan also does have a Coast Guard. However, that, just like here, that falls under the uh, different, um, it, they don't fall under the uh, Defense Ministry's purview. Mm. Um and uh, Japan's intelligence services is also evolving. Um, and then it's it's actually right now, um, primarily division of labor is um, inside Japan and outside Japan. <laughs> um, 
inside Japan is very much under the purview of uh, national police agency. Um, there is no equivalent of CIA. Uh, defense ministry has uh, defense intelligence headquarters. That is equivalent of our defense intelligence agency. Um, and uh, foreign, foreign ministry also has um, more of an equivalent of uh, intelligence and uh, analysis bureau of the uh, our State Department. Um, so it is really um, internal security is very much focused on the law enforcement functions and counterintelligence and the uh, outward um, like national security oriented um, really looks at the um, you know external ex external um, threat environment. But this is again also evolving in the emerging of you know cyber threats that is much more interagency and the Japan, you know, like us here, continue to grapple with uh, what's the best uh, way to um, shape that response, the government-wide response. Yeah, we, we, we could do a, an entire series of shows on how we think we should reconstruct the U.S. intelligence community to deal with modern <laughs> challenges, but we don't have time for that today. Uh, so Japan's industrial capacity is first-rate. Uh, I personally watched commercial shipbuilding happen in the dry docks in, in Sasebo. Uh, when I was assigned to the U.S. Navy's amphibious squadron uh, at that naval base back in 2000 to 2003. Uh, while that may have been shipbuilding uh, or shipping built for maritime commerce, it was pretty clear to me that Japan excels at shipbuilding uh, across the full range. And Japan's maritime self-defense force has truly excellent frontline combatants, pretty much the same capabilities that the United States Navy has uh, with our uh, Arleigh Burke-class destroyers and whatnot. Uh, so more broadly, is Japan's industrial capacity tapped out right now, or could Japan really expand shipbuilding capacity or aircraft manufacturing, especially for modern fighter aircraft, tanks, artillery, etc.? Where, where does Japan stand on this? So um, that's a great question, and again, you know, we can do a whole segment just on this topic. <laughs> So what's uh, interesting about Japan's uh, defense industry is that uh, it is completely separate with, um, from the rest of the economy almost um, because um, Japan's, um, Japan's kind of a focus on a self-defense kind of also translates into defense industrial capacity as well that its only customer so far has been the uh, J Japanese Ministry of Defense and the self-defense force. So they just don't have that, um, you know, big surge capability, that big surge capacity in a time of crisis. Um, because there's only one customer, the defense industry has been kind of dwindling, which has, which is actually uh, very much on the minds of uh, policymakers nowadays. And the strengthening um, industrial defense industrial base is actually one of the urgent tasks that uh, that are that's on the mind of a policymakers. But um, outside of defense, uh, outside of defense industry, like you mentioned, you know, Japan still does have a big manufacturing capacity. However, the challenge uh, for Japan as a country is the um, it's uh, aging workforce. Mm. Um, Japan is one of the we call Japan, you know, some someone calls Japan like hyper aging society. That in you know in decade or two, you know, one third of the population, like over one third of the population, is like over sixty five years old. So how do you deal 
and how do you sustain that you know manufacturing capacity while the country is rapidly aging and frankly you know less and less healthier younger you know workforce is um, actually a countrywide issue and uh, a lot of people a lot more people now start to say that Japan really needs to look at um, orderly way of um, promoting uh, more immigration and relax immigration standard I mean relax the immigration capacity but that really hasn't um, gaining you know much traction within Japan up to this point that, but, that, would, that would be a huge cultural shift I think it will be so that is I think um, I think uh, there's a logic you know logical reason of why Japan should start accepting more immigrants is there clear, loud and clear but I think there is a cultural barrier that really prevents that argument to really start gaining traction and it still is you know the state of play play today yeah that 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 demographics thing that is a huge influence on strategic planning right <laughs> oh yes uh, so, as so you know if you if you remember you know i guess um during obama administration i think you know secretary of defense gates said the biggest national security challenge for the united states is national debt yeah so you know for japan the biggest national security challenge for japan is its aging population yeah I, I, I'm sort of under the impression from what I've read and, and heard about uh, uh, young people in their 20s or even 30s are really not that interested in, in having kids in Japan. So the the birth rate has really come way down. Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah. So our, our, as Japanese political leaders look out beyond Japan's shores today, what do they see as the most critical security challenges? Uh, short-term, you know, kind of right-in-your-face kind of challenge is North Korea. Okay. Um, North Korea has been, you know, kind of almost bi-weekly, if not weekly, um, test-firing test some sort of missiles toward Japan's direction. So that's kind of right-in-your-face kind of security threat. And, and they've even launched ballistic missiles over Japan that have landed mm -hmm. out in the Pacific, right? Yep. Yeah, that's... They have done that. And uh, there's always this, you know, talk about when the next, when their next uh, nuclear tests might be. Mm. So that's kind of right in your face kind of threat. Um, over the horizon, though, beyond North Korea, Japan clearly sees China. Um, it's, a, it's a huge neighbor, first of all. And it's a big economy, second of all. And thirdly, even if they might have, you know, they, there is always a talk about population cleft. They have ten times more people, <laughs> and um, and much much bigger military. So that's really the uh, threat that Japan focuses nowadays. Yeah, those are those are very very reasonable things to to look at as far as uh, concerns in the Western Pacific. And anything beyond the Western Pacific that Japan is sort of concerned about right now that you can think of. Um, kind of relating to China, but um, Japanese, I know Japanese policymakers are paying very close attention whenever Russian and Chinese leaders meet and talk. <laughs> um, because every time they meet and talk, they agree to do more, you know, joint military drills, and that always seem to be happening around Japanese waters. So Japan doesn't like that. <laughs> um, they sometimes, um, Japan, as you, you know, as you may as you may remember, uh, still have a territorial uh, disagree, huge uh, territorial, you know, sovereignty disagreements. 
on the uh, four islands off of uh, uh, north of Japan. Um, and, uh, you know, now Chinese and Russians are doing exercises around those islands, you yeah. know, kind of make, you know, basically training, like theoretically training for amphibious, you know, emergency landing, which re they really do not like. No. So that's, that's a, that's a cons uh, cons concern that I can point right off the bat. But um, beyond that, um, they do worry how um, Russia-Ukraine conflicts mm. and now um, Middle East um, going down on a flame again, how that impacts um, United States stated focus on the uh, Indo-Pacific. Right. Because – this is a this is a periodical pattern, right? Because um, security you know, security challenge in the Indo Pacific is hardly kinetic. So obviously, you know, leaders tend to tend to get drawn more toward more kinetic conflict that goes on. And right now, it's Russia, Ukraine, and the Middle East. But in the meantime, you know, Indo Pacific, there are a lot of things going on that really requires American attention. So that does worry um, Japanese leaders, I think. Okay. So for our audience, uh, you're listening to National Security This Week here on KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1. I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is Yuki Tatsumi, Senior Fellow and Co-Director of the East Asia Program and Director of the Japan Program at the Stimson Center in Washington, D.C. So... Yuki Tatsumi, could you please characterize how Japan's political leaders and the Japanese people as well view the strategic partnership with the United States? How important is that alliance for Japan? Um, Japan um, alliance uh, between U.S. and Japan is very, very extremely important for Japan. Um, it anchors its foreign policy. Um, it, it, it is an anchor on for, for its uh, defense policy. And the support for the alliance with the United States is always high. If you poll it um, in the public opinion poll, um, overwhelming majority um, supports the, you know, they say they support the alliance. Um, it's probably really like the only, probably the, you know, um, small number of uh, communists um, <laughs> and socialists that are still living in Japan that are really, um, you know, don't have that view. So alliance with the United States uh, overwhelmingly supported within Japan, both, you know, amongst the political leaders, also across the, uh, you know, different political parties, again, with the exception of, you know, Communist Party. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, huge, uh, huge support amongst the uh, public, which so you probably felt when you were stationed in Sasebo. So. Uh, yeah, it was, I mean, it was a great experience. Uh, I, I thoroughly enjoyed my time uh, in Japan, those two and a half years I was assigned there. Now, I have to tell you, I was at sea most of the time <laughs> because that's, I mean, when you're, when you're in what's called the right. forward deployed naval forces, uh, either yeah. in, in Japan or, or in Spain, you're out at sea a lot. Uh, right. and, and that's just the way it is. So uh, Japan has also established closer security and economic relationships with other nations across the Pacific and, and in the Indian Ocean. Uh, Japan is part of the quadrilateral, quadrilateral Security Dialogue, or the Quad, as it is often called. Uh, that partnership mm -hmm. includes Australia, India, and the United States, as, as well as Japan. Japan has also strengthened security relationships uh, with India and Australia through bilateral relationships as well. 
Uh, could you talk about Japan's outreach to other democracies in the Indo-Pacific uh, region and what Japan is seeking by expanding those relationships? Is that part of uh, is part of that effort linked to Japan's economic goals, or or uh, because Japan does has have a very powerful economy, or is it is it more broadly exercising all of the tools of national power in this engagement, uh, this dialogue with these other countries? I think it is more for the latter. Um... And uh, especially, I think, nowadays, um, re relationship with countries like Australia and India are becoming much, much more important. Um, and uh, that is another one way for Japan to respond to the uh, more of a assertive, not so friendly, sometimes downright aggressive um, behaviors uh, demonstrated by China in the uh, Indo-Pacific Indo-Pacific region. Um, like, you know, like we're talking about, um, we've been talking, China is a huge country and a huge economy, and it has have a huge military, and it has a lot of people. So there is, I think, an awareness that is shared amongst, you know, not just between US and Japan, but then also with all those democracies in um, in the Pacific region, that uh, we can't do this alone, that we have to partner, and we have to work together to um, respond to um China, not necessarily to contain China, but yeah. make sure that, you know, China kind of stays and play along with the rules and norms that we all agree. Um, so in that sense, you know, Australia is and uh, nowadays more so like New Zealand and uh, Pacific Islands are really the key in that southern, you know, southern hemisphere. And then also, uh, you know, India, because it does sit at the, uh, you know, confluence of the two waters. Pacific Ocean and Indian Ocean. So that's why I think a partnership with those two countries are very important. And uh, with the uh, last, uh, this past summer's um, summit at the uh, Camp David, um, finally, Japan and uh, South Korea starts mending its uh, relationship, which is also very, very important when, it, when you look at Northeast Asia, look at North Korea and China. So... Yeah, in fact, I have an article here that uh, talks about the U.S. military is open to drafting contingency plans in partnership with both Japan and South Korea as a trilateral uh, approach to security in the region. That that is that is revolutionary thinking. <laughs> yeah, that is actually you know trilateralize those contingency planning is actually a big step forward. Um, U.S. and South Korea always had that contingency, you know, fight on the peninsula, <laughs> but. But it, you know, credit also goes to um, um, evolution in uh, South Korea. It's uh, leadership's thinking, too. Um, current president, President Yoon, is really committing South Korea into playing a bigger role outside Peninsula. Mm -hmm. And then I think that uh, brought a lot of positive impact in well, this, uh, in this uh, dynamics. Yeah, amongst and, the alliances. South Korea, another very powerful global economy. Uh, it makes sense uh, for the democracies who are strong capitalist uh, economies to, to be partnered together to look out for our mutual interests uh, and to try and keep the peace. Uh, so, Yuki, I'd like to stay on this topic of the economy for just a, a bit longer. Uh, how does Japan view the U.S.'s efforts to kind of reinvigorate the Trans-Pacific Partnership uh, Agreement? President Biden has sought a renegotiation of the TPP, but I don't think uh, we've seen much traction on that effort. 
uh, likely due to the many domestic issues here in the United States, frankly, uh, as much as it is due to, to the global affairs that are happening around the world right now. Right. Uh, I mean, also, so, and, and also on that, yeah. I mean, we had uh, the, the Obama administration, you've, you've studied this, these issues for a very long time. Uh, the Obama administration had worked very long and hard to try and build the Trans-Pacific Partnership. And then in the 2016 election, mm -hmm. both uh, the Democratic and Republican candidate pledged to pull the United States out. President mm -hmm. Trump won. He did it. He pulled us out of the TPP. Uh, but there was a, 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 a trade uh, deal that was signed even after that, a, a TPP. Right. It just didn't con include the United States. Right. Uh, th that may have been a very, very short-sighted uh, decision to make from a global economic perspective. So maybe comment a little bit about uh, where TPP might stand today, how Japan would view a U.S. coming into it. And additionally, how does Japan view the rise of the, the BRICS nations, Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa, as an economic mm -hmm. block? And I ask that because uh, Japan has engaged pretty strongly with India in a bilateral relationship right. as well as the quadrilateral but the BRICS nations, they, that is a fundamentally different thing when it comes to global economic policy and the right. potential impact on the global economy. Uh, and Saudi Arabia and a couple of other nations are actually joining that trade block in 2024, right. just a few months from now. Uh, these the, Combined, these nations in the BRICS will be a sizable block when considering uh, global GDP. So what are your thoughts on the international trade with regards to these two issues? So on the issue of TPP, um, Japan's stances, you know, for the United, you know, when 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 we look at, I think Japanese look at United States, um, Japan's view is like, well, um, we negotiate this together, and uh, uh, you just pulled out, so um, no, no renegotiation because we already done that. You yeah. just have to come back. <laughs> that is really, that is really the, um, that is really the. Um, um, basic stance because after you know United States pulled out, um, Japan really worked hard to keep the rest of the pack together, and that and so everybody minus United States have their own T, you know TPP CTTPP. So they are still waiting. You know, if United States wants to go back in there without renegotiation, they'll be welcome. You know, we'll be welcome back with open arms. But I don't. I just don't see that U.S. domestic politics allow that to happen. Nope. So thus, I think you know, Biden administration came out with the uh, India Pacific Eco Economic Framework (IPEF). That when when it was first announced, um, that met with like a lot of puzzled reaction. It's like, um, so. Are you redoing this, <laughs> or what is this different? Because we already have CPTPP, um, and uh, talking about BRICS, though, I think um, that is a uh, force to reckon with, um, both from the size of the you know size of the economy, but then also the fact that, um, with the exception of India, the uh, and South Africa. Uh, the major powers like Russia, um, they, and, uh, you know, I think Russia and China, like they represent a very different view on the, how international order needs to be organized. Yeah. So not just from trade and trade and economic point of view, but then also kind of a world order perspective point of view, um, I think it 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 will be a force to reckon with, and uh, Japan will 
continue to look at it very closely. And obviously, you know, Japan and India or Japan, South Africa, uh, Japan, Brazil, you know, Japan has bilateral um, economic relations with all of them and a pretty robust one too, but um, BRICS uh, kind of expanding and uh, emerging as uh, some sort of a trade block, I think will definitely get people's attention. I think uh, Japan is really um, extending, you know, all brands to uh, EU to do more on that, you know, trade and economy front. So that's another way of Japan coping by working with another democracies that shares fundamental values about different things like open economy, open trade, um, um, respect for, you know, freedom and certain international, you know, international norms um, to, to counter whatever the uh, negative repercussion um, that might be coming out of something like that alternative framework. Yeah. Uh, for our audience, you're listening to National Security This Week here on KYMN Radio. I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is Yuki Tatsumi, Senior Fellow and Co-Director of the East Asia Program and Director of the Japan Program at the Stimson Center in Washington, D.C. Uh, so, Yuki, how, how, how does Japan view the relatively new AUKUS agreement, uh, A-U-K-U-S, uh, that would be an agreement between Australia, the United Kingdom, and the United States to share knowledge and capacity across a number of shared security challenges. Uh, there are a number of pillars in there, but one of those areas uh, of, of really critical uh, importance is the sharing of nuclear submarine technology. And while it's not specifically stated, it's pretty clear that that partnership is focusing on the challenge from the People's Republic of China and expanding uh, the expanding People's Liberation Army Navy, particularly their submarine force. Uh, so what's Japan's take on the AUKUS agreement? So when the AUKUS was first announced, um, it caught uh, many defense officials um, in Japan by surprise, to be um, to be honest. And so there are two reactions. Um, it caught the French by surprise, too, by the way. <laughs> oh, yeah. So that was I was going to say um, there are two reactions. Number one is like, what is this AUKUS? We've never heard of it. We didn't. We weren't notified. And the second reaction is like, oh, we feel bad for French. Right. <laughs> but um, on that, I have to mention that uh, when Australian prime minister visited Washington recently, um, two leaders, um, um, Australian Prime Minister and uh, President Biden actually agreed. It's kind of a weird way to pull Japan into this because in that U.S.-Australia bilateral leaders um, statement, they talk about working with Japan on unmanned aerial vehicle systems. <laughs> so, so that actually... I was I was hearing that that caught Japan by surprise also, but um, that is um, obviously AUKUS is more focused on submarines, um, and this uh, U.S. Japan U.S. Australia now Japan kind of pulled in, focused more on the uh, um, air power, hmm. but um, so that is a, that is one development um, that's happening on that front. Um, it's not. White, um, J A J A U K U S yet. <laughs> um, I think AUKUS is uh, theoretically easier 
to do because everybody is within the five eyes country from United States perspective. Right. Um, they have a certain, you know, standard, like shared standard about information security, intelligence classification um, that makes it theoretically easier to share those, some more sensitive information and Japan, not so much yet. Um, so that really propelled Japan's um, actually debate within Japan of uh, what Japan may have to do to be added or included in the AUKUS. But um, with this uh, U.S.-Australia-Japan cooperation on the uh, UAVs uh, actually takes off literally and figuratively, uh, <laughs> that could be, that could be um, a step closer for Japan to be a uh, part of um, AUKUS. Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, we, we talked earlier about Japan's industrial base, uh, whether or not it could be expanded. Uh, I've read a number of articles recently uh, written by, you know, thoughtful national security thinkers uh, that have suggested that AUKUS could and, and probably should be expanded to include both Japan and South Korea, uh, which is interesting. I mean, that's a, that's a very different uh, structure than we've ever considered before. Japan, the United States, and South Korea have been holding these combined training exercises, really demonstrations mm -hmm. against North Korea for some time now. Uh, which has never happened before. I mean, it, it's it's shocking to me to see that it's happening. And like you said earlier, it's really a a confluence of events, and it's a transition of military or political leadership, really, in both Japan and South Korea to be willing to do those things in partnership together, and, and certainly with the United States. Uh, Japan and South Korea possess significant economies, vast industrial capacity. We discussed that that capability. What what are your thoughts on the concept of Japan and South Korea? joining the AUKUS agreement, specifically in the area of shared defense production knowledge and even capacity. I, we talked about the demographic challenges that uh, Japan has. Does South Korea share those same demographic challenges, or is their industrial capacity more likely to be able to support uh, sort of an expanded industrial uh, production capacity on the, on, the, on the military side? So South Korea does have a very similar demographic, demographic issue. As uh, Japan, um, they're maybe maybe like a decade or two decade behind mm. the curve in terms of uh, aging pace, but they do have that. Um, Japan and Japan and Korea does do share the those uh, demographic demographic challenges. When it comes to defense industry, I'd say South Korea is actually one um, couple of steps ahead of Japan mm. in terms of because. Um, South Korea doesn't impose uh, same restriction, you know, kind of a restriction that it has, that Japan has historically on their defense industry to export and go global and go international. So, you know, South Korea has actually, uh, now actually does have a longer history and working with, you know, U.S. Um, defense industry on a, you know, trainer aircraft and they, you know, they export that, you know, that jointly developed and produce like, you know, trainers like worldwide. Um, and uh, they also are more aggressive in terms of um, compete, you know, try to compete in the, um, you know, international like an armaments market, mm. which Japan still has a long, long way to go, even though back in 2014, um, it's uh, ex um, export restrictions or export guidelines for those uh, defense technology ha was um, was relaxed. Mm. Um, 
it was up until then, it was, you know, in, in all practicality, it was a total ban. But um, Japan basically um, going in, looking to get some kind of um, defense industry, industry work share when Japan decided to um, purchase uh, F-35 aircraft from the United States, right. that really required Japan to relax some of those, uh, some of those uh, restrictions. And then under Prime Minister Abe, um, basically they did the wholesale revision of those principles and relax it quite a bit. But even since then, though, you know, old habits die hard. So <laughs> Japan's defense industrial, basically Japan's like, you know, major defense industry really still looks at, uh, self, you know, self-defense force as their predominant customer. And uh, in, competing in international market is really not their instinct. And it takes a while for them to get there. Um, they, many of us are hoping that uh, you know, you mentioned AUKUS. So basically, you know, French, French as new, you know, subdeal was re, you know, basically, you know, scuttled. <laughs> but Japan was competing in that. So we, you know, many of us are hoping that doing well on that competition will propel those, you know, bring more changes and more incentives and a good precedence for Japanese, like in other parts of Japanese industry to follow. But maybe this uh, U.S.-Australia dragging Japan in on the UAB may do that trick. <laughs> so we'll see. <laughs> so I'm going to throw a, a, another question at you. It's sort of uh, com- bringing all, a lot of the things together that we've talked about mm-hmm. this morning, uh, kind of the economic structure, a lot of the diplomatic engagement, uh, the building these partnerships ar- around the region, uh, both the Western Pacific, uh, South Pacific, uh, and even into the Indian Ocean. Uh, two things that have, that have caught my eye recently. Uh, Japan's prime minister has been pursuing both economic and security ties uh, with the Philippines. Uh, so uh, we, we, if we've been following the news, we know that, uh, that, that China and the Philippines have really been coming head-to-head uh, over sort of control of certain elements of the Spratly Islands in the South China Sea. Uh, there have been some uh, interesting articles that came out. One of them was in War on the Rocks, for those who read it. Uh, the title is China's Gray Zone Tactics show the U.S.-Philippine alliance is working. Uh, Japan is clearly also building a relationship with the Philippines as another bolster against uh, uh, China's aggression towards the Philippines. And then a final thing, uh, another, another, uh, this is from the Japan Times, as a matter of fact, uh, staff writer, the title is, As Invasion Fears Rise, China Hones a Taiwan Blockade Strategy. Now, I know, having read other uh, resource material, that uh, the Japan's self-defense forces are thinking long and hard about what those impacts would be on Japan's economy and security in the region if China were to initiate uh, just even a blockade uh, of Taiwanese ports. Uh, there's a huge economic impact there. How, how does Japan view all of these, these, I mean, very serious security challenges in the Western Pacific? Yeah, great question. So Japan has had a obviously a long history of uh, reaching out to Southeast Asia, especially those, um, you know, those used to be primarily um, more, more, you know, investing more in their economy and helping them um, become more economically, you know, self-sufficient, you know, creating more local jobs, um, building a labor, you know, workforce capacity and so forth. But I think in the last 10 years or so, um, their assistance 
um, to those countries uh, really started to focus a little bit more on how to help them defend themselves. Okay. And uh, so not necessarily in the uh, so capacity um, building. Is that really yeah capacity for? building? Okay. Yeah, that's the word that I was looking for. Yeah. Um, and uh, but still, you know, not so much in the uh, hard power military kinetic, but more on invest. You know, helping them invest more on their coast guard, hmm. because really, when it comes to those territorial, especially. You mentioned uh, China's gray zone tactics. What that means is they, you know, the ships that are harassing Filipinos fishermen or Vietnamese fishermen, they are not PLA Navy. No. They are Japanese, you know, Chinese Coast Guard. Right. So as or, long or as even, Chinese. Or even Chinese fishing fleet. <laughs> right. So basically, you know, even if Chinese Coast Guard sh ship um, looks more like a battleship, as long as it has a white hole and it <laughs> has a Chinese Coast Guard label on it, um, theoretically, they're not using military force. So against that, um, their first response of any nation will be Coast Guard. Yeah. So Japan is really working hard with Philippines, uh, Fil Philippines and Vietnam, um, who probably get the brunt of those uh, harassment um, from China. Uh, Chinese various non-military vessels um, to uh, to strengthen their Coast Guard capacity. And another thing that Japan is helping Southeast Asia countries is to for those countries to uh, build another again capacity in the maritime domain domain awareness. Ah, uh, yeah. Um, and how those countries can share the uh, information about what's happening in their water and how so that they can continue to track seamlessly when those harassing vessels move move out of one country's waterway and they're moving into the other country's waterway um so they're they're helping uh southeast asian uh southeast southeast asian in that uh department taiwan blockade excellent questions um japan basically saw it unfolded right in front of their eyes after uh then speaker pelosi left taipei right <laughs> they did the joint drill really um, basically, that was a blockade, blockade training. Yep. You know, for the lack of better words, so um, so that definitely got uh, defense planners thinking. But then, like you know, we've been mentioning um, Chinese um, Chinese Texas has been in the gray zone area. So what Japanese are um, looking hard is to make you know how how Japan can really keep its pace with those uh, gray zone scenario in terms of uh, when it starts escalating because it does escalate pretty quickly once because it's such a confined space. Right. But also another important point, point is how to de-escalate. Yep. Right. Not just keeping up with the pace of escalation, but how to escalate, you know, how to almost how to escalate to de-escalate. Right. <laughs> you know, it's kind of part, you know, sound contradictory, but that that sequence is really the actual planners are paying much closer attention nowadays. Uh, which I think is important because uh, Japan and China actually have a territorial dispute over uh, what Japan calls the Senkaku Islands and, and what uh, China calls the, the Dayus. Uh, mm -hmm. And, and, I think most of that has been uh, 
gray zone where it's either fishing yes. fleet or coast guard mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. that we haven't seen the Japanese maritime self-defense forces and the no. PLA Navy going head to head over right. territorial issues there. So there's, right. I think both countries recognize we don't want to go to war <laughs> over these right. little islands, but, but yeah. making a demonstration of our right. intentions is, is a part of that kind of escalate mm-hmm. to deescalate sort of thing. Right. So now it's really, you know, in the, in the, right around the Japanese territory, territorial waters, the Japan Coast Guard is the first line of defense. Right, so. right. yeah. Uh, so, Yuki, we're coming up towards the end of the show. I always try to reserve a little bit of time at the end of the show for my guests to give us kind of the last word. We have covered a wide range of topics today uh, regarding Japan's defense policy and, and Japan's positions on a number of really important issues uh, around mm-hmm. the region. What, what final thoughts would you like to leave with our listeners today? The floor is yours. Great. Thank you. Well, again, I very much enjoyed this past hour or so conversation. It's rare that I could do a deep dive, you know, on air like this. It's usually the soundbite, so I really appreciate this opportunity to kind of explore the thoughts a little bit more deeper, a little, little bit deeper than usually allowed to. Um, I think the, if, I, if I were to leave the listeners with one thing um, off of this conversation is that Japan is changing, but some some elements of Japanese policies, um, national security policies, foreign policy remain constant, which is, um, which is um, everything Japan do does is really anchored in the thought and commitment that uh, um, Japan would not um, make the uh, 1930s, 1940s mistake again in terms of, you know, leading not the country, but it's, you know, leading its people into the war that only brought the massive, massive catastrophic destruction upon itself. Um, But as the definition of a national defense and national security uh, changes and evolves, so did the, uh, its policy. So I would call what the changes that we're seeing today as evolutionary, but it's not revolutionary. Okay. I think that is that is an important thing that the uh, listener keeps in mind because a lot of the time it is very easy to harp on a headline such as Japan is doubling its defense, you know, defense spending, and say Japan is oh my gosh, Japan is becoming like a big military power. Well. Um, so Japan has been spending less than 1% of GDP on defense. So even doubling that is two. Um, and even then, Japan's national defense budget is one-tenth, 10% of U.S. defense budget. Right. So let's put this in the proper perspective and context when you, when you, when you read those headlines. So, so that's something that I would uh, leave you with. Okay. Uh, Yuki Tatsumi, I, I thank you for sharing your time with us this morning. Uh, what what research and writing projects uh, are you working on right now, and when might we be able to read them? So I just finished. Um, I'm I'm just I'm in the final stage of editing on the um, ebbs and flows of Japan's um, attitude toward um, nuclear weapons. Okay. In the aftermath of a Russia-Ukraine, you know, in the middle of the Russia-Ukraine conflict, and uh, so that. That should hit the uh, online publication stash in the next uh, two weeks, three weeks. Okay. So <laughs> that'll be that'll be the first thing that I 
And then I also would like to work on, start working on the concept of the book on the um, national, how Japanese uh, national defense policy has uh, evolved and how we, how it will um, continue to impact um, alliance, U.S. alliances with the. Uh, with Japan. Are, are there any programs planned for either the Japan program or the East Asia program at Stimson uh, that are upcoming that uh, people um, can do, participate actually. in? We do, actually. Thanks for asking. Um, so on December 7th, uh, we will have a hybrid event. So, you know, listeners in your area can actually participate online. It's a little bit earlier, but I am hosting um, equivalent of um, General Mark Milley who just retired as a chairman of Joint Chiefs, so his Japanese counterpart, who also has recently retired, um, to have a conversation about his his thoughts on the uh, modernization of the alliance and defense cooperation between U.S. and Japan. Wow. And that's on December 7th. That'll be fun. And that's a hybrid. <laughs> All so. right. I might have to tune in for that one. <laughs> so Yuki Tatsumi from the Stimson Center, thank you so much for joining us today here on National Security This Week. Thank you. Folks, that closes this week's edition of National Security This Week. We're on KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1. I'm your host, John Olson. Thank you for joining us today. I look forward to sharing time with you again next Wednesday morning at 9 a.m. Thank you for listening to National Security This Week here on KYMN Radio. Have a great finish to your week, everybody. Take care. You've been listening to National Security This Week, a weekly look at issues affecting America's security concerns with host John Olson. It's brought to you by the Cybersecurity Summit. Check their website, cybersecuritysummit.org, for a listing of their upcoming webinar series.